2: Hello everyone and welcome to New Books Network. My name is Sue Rautio and I'm one of the hosts of the show. On the podcast today, we are joined by a research associate hosted at the Institute for Social Anthropology at the University of Basel and principal ins- investigator on a Swiss National Foundation grant, Professor Leslie Nicole Brown. Leslie is joining me to talk about her book, Congo's Dancers, Women and Work in Kinshasa, published in 2023, just a couple of months ago, by University of Wisconsin Press. In Congo's Dancers, Leslie Nicole Brown uses the prism of female Congolese professional concert dancers to examine the politics of control and the ways in which notions of visibility, virtue, and socioeconomic opportunity are interlinked. The Concert Dancer exemplifies the challenges that women face in Kinshasa as they navigate the public sphere to shed light on the gender differences of local patronage politics that shape public morality. The book is, is full of rich ethnographic details that dances across the page, linking theoretical conversations that will be of interest to academics working in African studies and dance, in addition to readers who want to learn more about the importance of female agency in Africa's urban settings today. I will be discussing Congo's dancers in more detail with Le- Leslie, who have the pleasure of joining me on the show today. Leslie, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm really
1: thrilled to be here and it's it's a it's a great pleasure to be able to share this book with uh with you and your listeners. So thank you.
2: I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed your work and I'm really excited to talk about it in more detail. Before we delve into the chapters, I wanted to ask you about um, how you. what led you to, to Kinshasa. As an ethnographer, you had unusual access to the world you documented, having been invited to participate as a concert dancer yourself. What led you to this world and what inspired you to study dance and dancers in Congo?
1: Thanks for that question. Um, I think I wanted to begin with how the history of how Congolese rumba music um, was created and how it then circulated, because it's a really fascinating narrative, and it's one that I think first really inspired me and inspired me to sort of delve into this this rich musical um, um, world of of dance and and music. Um, so it all, it all began with this this, this movement of people it was a forced migration. Um, when slaves from Central Africa were transported to the New World, and I think we're all familiar with this, they were loaded onto ships and they were brought to places like, like Cuba. Um, and, and individuals brought with them their own rhythms and traditions from their homelands. And over time, like in the New World, uh, the fusion of African musical elements and local influences gave birth to what we know today as as Cuban rumba music. And the key turning point in this is in this musical journey um, was also the advent of, of new technology, specifically the production and the dissemination of vinyl records. So, you know, records were being recorded of Cuban rumba music, and they began to spread worldwide. And, you know, like people in New York City in the 1930s and 40s were dancing to the rhythms of of Cuban rumba music. Um, And then what's particularly intriguing is that the, the role that Greek merchants and sailors played in the spreading of this music and so sailors voyaged to Central Africa and they brought with them, you know, these vinyl records that they had bought in, in Cuba of Cuban rumba music. And during the interactions in ports, when you know goods were loaded on and off boats, um, the magic of these records was shared and they were played and Um, When Congolese listeners working in the ports, when they listened to this music, you know, and they inquired about it, where does this music come from? They were told that it was from far away, it was a place, Cuba, um, and that this was Cuban rumba. Um, But when the Congolese listeners, you know, were listening, they recognized themselves in the music and they recognized that there were certain elements that came from, you know, ancestral traditions, And it was this recognition um, that led to the birth of what we call today Congolese rumba music. So it's sort of this perfect circle of influences. And it really is a nice reminder about how, you know, culture works and how culture is created. It's never out of a vacuum. It's always out of encounter. Um, And, you know, Congolese rumba then in turn went on to have a really profound influence on the entire African continent. And it played a pivotal role during the decolonization era with songs like Independence, Cha Cha Cha, uh, which really became an anthem of the time. And dance was an integral part of this, this musical culture, and it, and it remains so today. And of course, it's gone, you know, the music has gone through so many different iterations since that time, or, you know, as people refer to it as generations, generations of music. Um, and so it's not surprising that like the music that we hear today, Congolese rumba, is, is, is different from the stuff that you hear from that golden era in the 1930s. Um, and I think it's this intricate journey of music and dance through history um, and, and time that has been my inspiration to explore the world of, of dance and dancers in Congo. And, you know, I think it's a really captivating story that reveals like deep connections between music and dance and, and the history of the region um and so I realized then that like you know dance was such a pivotal role it plays a pivotal role in people's lives and um and it it was it was um not just an art form but it's sort of a means of of communication and it's also an embodied historical archive um and, and also like a really powerful form of expression and so this was something that that um was you know the driving force in my in my my research at the time.
2: I love that, and and it really kind of captures the whole essence of the book, um, which is you start with the you start the book with the following sentence: Dance is at the heart of sociability in Kinshasa. So and this is exactly what you were talking about. Um, could you talk a bit more about the social element to music and dance in urban DRC today, and the role that women play in it?
1: Um, right. Yeah. So, so Congolese music and dance have evolved to be at the sort of the heart of, of sociability, um, in Kinshasa, uh, and other places, other urban spaces, especially. And, and, and this Kinshasa is a capital city. It's, it's home to some 14 million people. I mean, it's a mega city, um, and it's renowned internationally for it, its virtuosic musicians and, and its dancers, um, and and, it, and the city itself has given birth to international famous internationally famous bands like Weharason, Kofi Olomide, Fally Ipupa, and these concert bands uh, frequently tour and they travel and they fill stadiums, not just in, in Africa but uh, but further abroad. And one striking characteristic of popular concert bands is is their size. Um, So these ensembles can be really quite large, sometimes like more than 20 members. Um, And they're typically composed of singers and musicians and dancers. um, And and dancers especially really create this like energetic spectacle that is really relied upon for for attracting a paying audience. Um, And and women, despite not necessarily being primary singers um, or musicians, though there's a lot more exceptions now, there are some exceptions to that. Um, women are really central to this musical form um, through their roles as professional dancers or danseuses. And, and these young women who are hired uh, to dance in band shape the identity of, of music and and play a pivotal role um, in, in, in society at large in terms of pop culture. Um, and that's, of course, just that's popular concert dancing. But of course, dance is so central to other... Um, social events, like from religious gatherings, funerals and wakes, political events, um, to festive celebrations, like birthday parties. And so women's roles in dance go beyond just mere entertainment. It's it's really sort of like, you know, becomes a means of self-expression, identity. Um, and, and through dance, you know, people can communicate, you know, cultural and social and personal narratives as well as transmitting histories. Um and, you know, what I learned was that dance in contrast really serves as a kind of kinetic archive, preserving not just rhythms and movements, but also memories of significant political events. Um, you know, and you, like, you know, when you talk to people, people can vividly recall specific historic moments and link them to dances um, at, that were performed at that particular time. So for instance, like it's not uncommon Uh, To hear people tell stories, especially older people, about how they danced the Ndombolo in a particular way when the former president Kabila made his entrance into the country, like in a coup d'etat. So it has, like, sort of like a vivid, you know, poignant um, uh, memorializing effect, I would say.
2: And chapter one really delves into more detail around. The role that dance plays in in Congo's modern history, you discuss the historical underpinnings that have shaped contemporary g- gender dynamics in Kinshasa through dance. And in this chapter, you you frame it around three temporal contexts. You look at it. You look at um, Congo's modern history and dance through early colonial period, when nightlife and new popular musical genre, genres emerged. You also look at how. Post-colonial nation building in which women in dance were instrumental to new political stakeholders unfolded. And lastly, you look at dance and women's role in it through contemporary pen- Pentecostalism. What I found particularly interesting about this chapter is how you locate the emergence of post-1945 African city life and its music as a point of departure to analyze the ways in which feminine visibility is constructed and negotiated. And this is kind of what your whole book traces and and it's just, it's fantastic. (laughs) In each of these historical time periods in this particular chapter, you show how dance has become a particular fraught terrain in which morality, virtue and power come into play. And at the same time, you look at how dance is a political tool that authoritative figures affix to its citizens to co-opt its potency. In the context of your fieldwork, what is its potency and why is dance so appealing to men with power? Thanks for that question.
1: Um, I think the, uh, the energy and the life force um, that are inherent in dance, you know, have historically been instrumentalized in a lot of different places, you know, even outside of the Congo, um, for different ways to achieve different ends. Um, and, and it's, dance is also, it's played a pivotal role in nation building projects worldwide. Um, so I think some of us can sort of intuitively glean um, the application in that regard. But in the case of Congo, you um, Dance occupies a really unique and interesting position in the, the the country's history and culture, and I talked a little bit about Congolese rumba and how that evolved. But um, if we go back even to the colonial era, you know, this brutal era where where the Belgians, um, you know, dominated and were colonizing and introducing new ideas, you know, Belgian missionaries in particular stigmatized dance, and, and they viewed it as something vulgar and immoral and 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 really incompatible with these. Uh, European values that they were trying to impose on people. Um, But however, you know, and that also, by the way, has like a really interesting history and there's a lot of interesting like history that's, um, you know, that has been done um, um, around that idea. But if we look at um, later on, you know, when the landscape started to, you know, shift and change uh, during Congo's independence. Uh, This is in the 1960s, you know, following especially the the tumultuous uh, period when Patrice Lumumba, um, the country's first prime minister, was tragically murdered. Um, Mabutu Sese Seko, who subsequently took over and who ruled the country for over three decades, sought to reclaim dance and reclaim it from what the Belgians had done to it. And he wanted to revalorize it and give it a new place in society. Um, And he he elevated dance to something that he proposed was integral to um, his, quote, authenticity project. So it was a project that he introduced um, um, that he called authenticity or authenticity. And his his main aim was to assert the unique cultural identity of the Congolese people in the post-colonial era. And like a lot of, you know, presidents at the time, he, he was trying to also bring people together, people who came from really, really diverse backgrounds. I mean, you know, Congo is the size of, of Western Europe. Um, it's massive and it's home to some, you know, 250 um, linguistic groups, ethnic groups. I mean, it's like it's incredibly big. And so, you know, within this framework of statecraft, um, which drew ins- inspiration from other decolonization projects such as Leopold Senghor's in Senegal. Uh, Mabutu aimed to give uh women in particular a visible and significant place within the state. Um, and this was really a departure from the colonial era stigmatizing dance that we saw, you know? And in contrast, again, Mabutu sought to sort of recognize the vital role of women in Congolese society, both as preservers of tradition and active participants in the cultural Renaissance that was part of the authenticity project. Um, and so dance, when harnessed by, by those in power, like you know, presidents and other, way, and other people, dance really can serve as a means to unite and rally the population behind a specific vision um or ideology. And in the case of Mobutu, dance became a symbol of of Congolese identity.
2: Um, I liked how I, I liked how you continue on this topic in chapter two, um, titled Overlapping Tempos. Um but here you kind of position your your ethnography and in and the current um day and era, where you focus on the role that music and dance play in the lives of women and and younger girls. And I just, I love this chapter for the ethnography that that, um, is illustrated on the pages. Um, You show how Dance. I mean, reading the book, dance, just I can, I can imagine the scene, I can hear the music. And um, you, you describe dance and social spaces where people come together from dancing at home um, to, to dancing with friends and family and concerts and clubs to, to dancing in the church. And I particularly liked how you incorporate the importance of um, dance and in particular dancing in front of the mirror. I love how you pay attention to to the importance or the, the role that dance, uh, sorry, the role that the mirror plays in in, in dancing and performance itself. Um, and you yourself as a dancer, you describe how you propped up a mirror against the television in, the, in your living room with your female friends so that you could imitate the dance sequences of music videos whilst at the same time seeing the reflection of yourselves dancing on the mirror. And this is just this is is anybody who who dances as a as a hobby or, or to make a living um knows this. Um you can I can and me myself, I could very much relate to this, but um what was even more fascinating is the role that mirrors play in clubs, um, and you have this fantastic ethnographic description of um, these clubs you were going to as mirrored spaces and the kind of hypnotic effect that um, people had when they were watching themselves dance to particular tunes. It was it was very um, sounds like it was actually it wasn't always spontaneous. It was very much choreographed. But what is it about if you could, sorry, Leslie, if you could tell us more about what dancing in mirrors, um, what, why is dancing in mirrors so profound? And what does it tell us about the moral dispositions that powerful institutions such as the Pentecostal Church impose on what they see as the profanity of dance? Thank you. Yeah, that's a big
1: question. Um, I guess to begin, to frame it all, I, maybe it's important to highlight that there's this this ongoing struggle over dance between Christian Pentecostal churches, um, which are so uh, omnipresent in the city's landscape um, and and concert bands in Kinshasa. And so it's this, this complex uh, terrain of contestation between these sort of, you know, if you could sort of divide it up between two groups, the Pentecostals and sort of like, you know, the concert um, bands. Um, And, and I would say that, you know, for, I guess, for Pentecostal churches, they're really known for, for their lively worship services, and, um, and, and they've embraced dance as a form of spiritual expression. Um, and they view it in a way of, a, as connecting uh, with God and praising God. Um, and in this context, dancing is considered sanctified and virtuous. Um, and it's really an integral part of religious gatherings and it's seen as a means of channeling one's devotion and spirituality. On the other hand, uh, concert bands, which are often associated with more secular, profane music and entertainment, also, of course, incorporate dance as, essential, as an essential element in their performances. And so as a consequence, I mean, churches have, have demonized the dance associated with these, these, these bands and they consider it as immoral. Um, especially when it involves women and and professional women, you know, dancing in particular in costumes, on stage for money. Um, And so it really highlights a broader debate over the role of dance in society, as well as as gender dynamics and and the changing roles of of gender dynamics. Um, And so maybe it's not so much um, the mirrors themselves that churches take issue with. When it comes to when it comes to dance, but it's sort of the moral dispositions that these churches impose on what they see as profanity in dance um, that are often rooted in maybe what they see as a, a source and a context of, of the dance movements themselves. Um, and so, dance moves acquired from televised performances, like the shows that my friends and I would watch at night and try to Im- mimic, um, they may be perceived as you know problematic because they're often they're associated with these. Um, with, with you know, secular, uh, maybe more dubious movement practices um, that can be seen as sort of conflicting with religious or, or moral values. Um, but what's really interesting is that even if there's this overlap in choreographies, maybe it'd be the same movement sequence, the same sequence if it's done on stage or in church, even if it's the same choreography, the dance itself transforms and is actually a different dance, which highlights this idea that context is so fundamental Um, in in terms of, you know, shaping the moral attitude um, about the dance itself.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Sax.com
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I just wanted to add on, it was particular I mean, as an ethnographer, as an and as an anthropologist. I think you can only come to understand these differences or or these overlaps, but also the kind of the more the moral virtues that are imposed on dance by yourself becoming a dancer and and dancing these spaces. Because, um, again, (laughs) what I enjoyed so much about your description around the role of the mirror was that you... um, you yourself as a dancer was able to understand that dancing in front of a mirror is not seductive or not only seductive it's also reaffirming and um i think it's very easy as um as a researcher or somebody who who might study these you know similar kind of art forms but not participate in it it would be easy to use that kind of moral um repeat that same moral stance and kind of keep a distance um, from dancing in front of clubs, for example, in front of a um, mirror to thereby claim that dancing in church is, is maybe the more um, moral um performance but also one that emphasizes community over solo fame and, and fortune. Yeah,
1: absolutely absolutely. And I think that I guess that was one thing that maybe I, I didn't I didn't um exemplify really is that uh dance was really my method. So it's really dance as method and it was, you know, of course the cornerstone of anthropology we we're participant observers. And so it was really like my implication as a dancer, my role as a dancer in, in various spaces, like including concerts, you know, where I was hired. Um, to dance but as a reserved dancer I wasn't I wasn't good enough to be with the real ones but and so it was only really through that experience and that participation that I was able to glean um, some of these experiences and vulnerabilities that that were shared by 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 the people that I was that I was you know getting close to and building rapport with um, so like in that regard I think dance is a really powerful uh, method in terms of yeah building rapport with people you're sweating you're working with people um, and you're gaining trust that way but then you're also um, you know uh, experiencing there's a kind of embodied and uh, embodied knowledge that arrives with um, you know like learning by doing so that that was absolutely fundamental to, to this project
2: and to this book for that matter absolutely and um, again Leslie you're, you're being modest about your role as a dancer because even if you might have been reserved dancer you were still there in rehearsals you were there backstage you were you had a completely different angle of what was happening in the dancers lives not just when they're performing but of course being able to enter their their everyday um, lives on a much more intimate level. But um, if we move on to the next chapter um, titled Dance Formations, here as well, your very, um, very role as an anthropologist is crucial because um, what I found so fascinating is that you describe how choreographies in concert dances, even though the, the dancers themselves might be women, the choreographies are designed by men. Um, so, here, what you describe in the chapter is how these choreographies designed by men um, also have the intention of entertaining the crowd and capturing the male gaze. And again, this chapter is rich with ethnography that really looks at um, where this gaze is going when the women are on stage. Um, you focus on female concert dancers um, while she performs, but could you tell us a bit more about some of the trajectories that a woman in Congo? Um, go through to become a dancer with a popular band? Um,
1: Right. So dancers with popular bands are not just like ordinary dancers. Um, They must, you know, demonstrate a really high level of skill and talent. Um, And, and I think becoming a dancer with a popular band is also a path that many women um, coming from maybe economically disenfranchised backgrounds aspire to. Um, And and the life of a dancer can be really, really physically demanding. You know, they endure extremely taxing rehearsal schedules. They perform late into the night at concerts, and they often, you know, have to travel and and go on tour with the band. And so this is a really rigorous lifestyle that's physically demanding and also mentally challenged. Uh, And it's not well remunerated. So it's kind of interesting and intriguing as to why. Uh, people would then, you know, sign themselves up to do this. But maybe it's also perhaps like explaining also why that w- with women, women who are inclined dancers, you know, who exhibit a level of skill or are perhaps, uh, you know, more motivated to join the band because maybe they have nothing really to lose. This is like their one shot uh, in gaining some sort of like social and economic mobility. There's a, there's a promise for that. Um, and so, yeah, to become a dancer with a, a band, you um, you you have to really like you know work very very hard, um, and I, I would say that the length and success of a dancer's career really depends on the popular the popularity of the band. Um, so super famous bands like Weharson or Kofi Lumide, you know, like they have like huge um, you know sales and they pack stadiums and so on. You know, of course they're gonna they're gonna provide stability and 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 contribute to the longevity of a dancer's you know overall career. Um, and so with such bands, like a dancer can can dance for up to 10 years, if not more. Um, you know, another, another thing that I perhaps alluded to is that success is, well, it's close, it's tied to the band's popularity um, and the opportunity to migrate abroad is also like... An aspiration um, and something that is, in particular, appealing to women who who are joining bands. Perhaps, um, so many dancers view touring with their bands as a, as a kind of like potential means of of escape, uh, escaping you know the challenges of living in in the DRC to build new lives elsewhere. Uh, and and many women who become dancers, um, you know, like there's this hope that they're going to go abroad to Europe and to North America. And, um, you know, this can then open you know, open new doors of opportunity. And a lot of women actually seize the opportunity um, and they defect from their bands uh, once on tour. And, you know, this is this is a risky move, to be sure. It often means leaving the support of your your band, you're also your family um it, it, to search for sort of like a new life abroad. Um, but nevertheless, there's this 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 understanding that like if you go on tour, there's this there might be a possibility of then, you know, about leaving and starting a new life somewhere else.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that definitely. Comes, comes through in the chapter itself, um, where you also describe through your interviews with male band leaders, um, kind of the, this relationship, the fict- what you describe as the kind of fictive kinship networks that are built, um, which was really fascinating. I don't know if I would have been able to imagine that whole, you know, just how crucial those networks are. Um, in chapter four, in the next chapter, you elaborate on concepts that are crucial to an understanding of how female virtue was constructed and perceived in Kinshasa. The chapter traces the symbolic role that Mami Wata plays in Congo. Can you tell us a bit more about Mami Wata? Um, my understanding is it's a water spit spirit that's venerated in West Central and South of Southern Africa, in addition to the Afro-American diaspora. But what did Mami Wata um, teach you about how female virtue is constructed and perceived in Kinshasa?
1: Yeah, so like you, you bring up Mami Wata is, is uh, it, she's an iconic figure that she circula- circulates in so many different African um, contexts and also in and through the African diaspora. Um, you know, for example, in West Africa, she's openly prayed to and, and venerated and celebrated. However... In the DRC, and in particular in Kinshasa, she she's considered taboo, and very few men will openly admit to worshiping her. Um, instead, Mamiwata in, in Kinshasa is perceived as a seductress, and she's she's a really a deeply ambiguous figure connected to um, notions of material excess, in particular. And she's so she's a mystical female siren who, who who looks like a mermaid. She's depicted in painting as a mermaid. Um, you know, the top of half of her is is a beautiful woman, a topless woman usually, and the lower half is she has a tail like a fish tail. And she pr- promises to reward her devotees with material wealth, but in exchange. She demands loyalty, and, and, and this is a man's loyalty, of course. And this loyalty sometimes requires men to make sacrifices, including the souls of their loved ones. So, you know, there's an abundance of stories surrounding Mamiwata, and she, she often serves, serves as a cautionary tale. Um, you know, her stories depict men who are seduced by material consumption, right? They are ha- they're, they, they're greedy and they're motivated to enrich themselves. Uh, but, but these men are, are then, you know, led to their own demise, their own destruction. So she's, she's a cost, cautionary tale, especially in Kinshasa. So Mamiwata um, is believed to have the ability to grow legs at night um, and and she she she's she enters the human world and and there she seduces men, and you know there's like such fantastical stories. In there. It's always really interesting to be regaled by such stories. And you know, like my friend's uncle, for example, claimed to have interacted with her. You know, and so he'll he'll tell you that she's real, she exists. And, and tales of encounters with Mamiwata often involved um, descriptions of women of exceptional beauty, but who disappear into the night. Um, which is you know, very intriguing for everyone. And another intriguing aspect um, of Mommy Whats's presence is 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 the association, um with wealthy men who are sometimes believed to have made pacts with her. So, so for example, if people can't really discern um the source of a person's financial success or what they do for work for that matter, one will often hear, claims that that man has Mamiwata or that his money is mystical. So there's this perception of dubious and suspicious sources of wealth, um, and and that these are considered sort of immoral because they could potentially be linked to occult uh, forces harnessed um, in its acquisition. So, you know, in contemporary Kinshasa, this is also reflected in, you know, popular television shows. And a lot of these shows feature, you know, depictions of Mamiwata as well. And um these portrayals are, are situated in the context of consumption and, and capitalism, especially. And um, you know, here, you know, women are are, are considered sort of immoral, insatiable uh, seductresses who use their beauty and sexuality to extract resources from men. Um and I, and I suppose that you know periods of periods of stressful societal transformation often trigger concerns regarding the perceived virtue of women, and we see this all over the world when you know when when things socially are changing very very quickly, women are often sort of the, the first you know people that are coming under control under control their bodies are the first things that are are attempted to be controlled. Um, and so, you know, moral panics often arise surrounding perhaps women's hidden desires or their seductive capabilities. And I think that the the, the symbolic figure of Mamiwata serves as an effective representation to, to shed light on some of these like anxieties linked to public visibility um, and also to capital accumulation. So there's an intersection there. And in many ways, I think courtship and seduction within nightlife settings become intertwined with spiritual forces um, that influence popular discourses about dance in particular. And the dynamics of women's dancing, which can range from like flirtatious teasing um, to potentially menacing expressions, render dance an ambiguous and, and challenging practice um, to socially control. And so women's dance therefore occupies like a a pivotal intersection between various social dimensions, including social networks, religious morality, and the pursuit of sexual liberation. And Mamiwata in Kinshasa embodies, I think, complex and sometimes contradictory notions of femininity, materialism, and morality. And she serves as a symbol both of of desire uh, and danger reflecting the evolving perceptions of female virtue, and the impact of, of consumerism on society in that particular context.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And this, this role, um, the kind of it's, I mean, it sounds a bit or that the, the kind of the double bind that, that she that she represents, is something that you consider that you continue talking about in the, in the chapter after that, which looks at the complex relationship between intimacy and money, and how this relationship has impacted women's ability to achieve professional respectability in the work sphere in Kishasa. And as you write throughout your book, there's a general assumption in Congolese society that the wider a woman's social relations are, the deeper they are involved in the sexual economy. Women are judged by how visible and exposed they are, and this goes beyond dancers, as you described, to include female journalists, merchants, and politicians. The wide social networks of a woman can be threatening to a man, thus placing women into double binds within the labor market. Can you tell our listeners more about this and how women in Congo both are expected to be financially independent while at the same time reliant on these kind of patriarchal structures?
1: Yeah, so like a lot of other cities, um, you know, Kinshasa has experienced a rapid urbanization, and it's given way to new modes of employment and also new social roles for women. Um, And I think we're, we're facing this also within our own society, you know, like, you know, like, you know, the place of women is always changing. And... Um, we're entering new fields of work. And so as, you know, many scholars have highlighted, as, as women, women's work changes, so too do gender relations. You know, there's a dynamic there at play. And social capital, or there's a notion um, referred to as, quote, the wealth in people. Um, you know, you have, you have social capital, you have your connections, um, you know, there's, there, there there's a wealth that's associated with that. Um, this is equally important for women as it is for men, so women need to sort of maintain a large contact base in order to be successful in their, in their different lines of work in, in, in the city. And public visibility is required to create and expand these social networks, like you have to be out and about to be meeting people. Um, and the extent to which a woman presents herself in public shapes then how she's sort of morally perceived, um, and so here, herein lies a bit of the, the double bind that I was, I was trying to sort of like, you know, highlight and explore. It's, it's the sense in which, since a woman needs to cultivate, you know, vi- her public networks, um, her social networks by being visible, there's also a little bit of a backlash and a moral um, stigmatization of women who are considered to be sort of overly visible. So it's this visibility that needs to be managed by women, um, especially in the public sphere. And I, one way in which a woman uh, mitigates public visibility or exposure is through what's called um, a system of encadrement, which serves to protect and control and contain women through alliances, uh, but also supervision. So in this chapter, I, I offered sort of several, you know, like you bring up ethnographic s- accounts of women who participate in highly public um, jobs, like politicians and journalists and also Uh, money changers that change money on the streets Um, and of course uh, concert dancers. And um, you know, in, in these different, you know, work milios men often distress women um, because it's assumed that their line of work, their employment brings male solicitation. So I, I explore the ways in which women's, you know, social network then poses a threat to, to her, her female, her female virtue. And so the interplay between, you know, visibility, public work, and female virtue is something that I sort of like I'm trying to tease apart in this chapter.
2: Yeah, it's something that you definitely succeed in. I think and 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 it is really fascinating to read about these double binds and 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 both within the kind of dance industry and beyond that in wider society and how that's constantly changing, which is what you're which is really what you are um showing throughout the book. Moving to the final chapter I absolutely love this chapter thoroughly because it's such a beautiful depiction of what you do so well as a writer. You have these fantastic metaphors that you connect to dance into bigger themes in Congolese society. And in this particular chapter, you analyze the new tensions that are have emerged and are constantly emerging between the sexes and the notions of sacred and profane that dance and dancers generate. Could you talk about some of these new tensions and what are what are they also a continuation of?
1: I think in, in this last in this very brief chapter, of five pages or so, I, I guess I was uh, again trying to you take some creative liberties and and show how dance has a really unique and dynamic presence in Congolese society, and and I wanted to show how how dance spills out from modes of containment, you know, seeping between genres. Um, and how it's regarded as a potent, you know, motivating life force. And it, it's particularly challenging for an anthropologist to write about dance because it's it's such an ephemeral expression and it's so difficult to pin down. And even through writing, when you when you write about it, somehow it it then pins it down and it transforms and it becomes this other thing. Um, you know, and the individual's relation to to power emerges through through affect in the way that um you know, dance can sort of evade precise language, just like sort of the dancer's ability to to express through the body. And I think these tensions reflect a broader struggle in society where nuances of nuances of power and gender and culture expression all sort of come together and become intertwined. Um, and again, I think the ephemeral nature of 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 dance and why relations of power are so often entangled with it, um you know, and 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 how they're entangled with it um, are, are reflected in performances like you know that ones that I was I was looking at, especially the performances of of of, of young dancing women, uh, the professional concert dancers, and I think that these women inadvertently lay bare the struggles shared by many Congolese women as they navigate and they manage economically, you know, and politically precarious landscapes, and so the struggle for for agency and autonomy. And the negotiation of power dynamics, I think, are themes that transcend the dance stage, um, and are not only ref- not only reflect but also shape larger societal shifts.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Leslie. This has been such a such a rich conversation, and I've already taken a lot up a lot of your time. Before, but before we end today's episode, um, I'd like to ask you what you're working on and thinking about these days what are your current projects and what you've been working on sorry what have you been doing since Congo's Dancers was published even though it's only been a couple of months it just came out but what are some of the more recent projects that, that you've been working on
1: well first I wanted to extend my gratitude of course for having me on as a guest on this po- podcast and it's really it's a pleasure to talk about my work and have this opportunity uh, to answer also such thoughtful questions, so thank you again. Um, and yeah, this book is—it's only you know a few months old, but um, you know, as we all know, as anthropologists, this takes like quite a long time to write. And so, actually, for the past four years or so, I've been—I've been deeply immersed in the exploration of um, the informal economy of trade in and between the DRC and China. And specifically, I, I've been—I've lo- been tracking the movements of women who work as trans- transnational traders. Uh, who are engaged in the importation of consumer products from China um, into the DRC. And so this research has led me to investigate especially the role um, of the Internet and ICTs or Internet uh, Communication Technology plays in in these trading networks, especially post-pandemic. And so part of what I'm looking at is the ongoing efforts to connect DRC to underwater Internet cables, and of course, this is part of a larger global trend where where countries are striving to establish high speed internet connectivity. Um, and so, in this regard, I've been closely examining the various international players who are competing in in the sphere of expanding internet infrastructure in the DRC. But then, of course, again, like I'm always interested in uh, recentering women in, in these larger sort of macro discussion. And so, like, what are women's and roles um, as traders and and, and how do they position themselves in this, in this very competitive economically landscape?
2: Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating and I can't wait to hear and read more about it as, as, um, as your work begins to unfold after, now that you've finished this, this book, you can, you can start focusing on other things. And, um, and also Leslie, we've been working on our own paper on um, dancers in, in China. So that's also something that, that, um, listeners should look, um, look out for, looking at how um, three, in particular, three African dancers in, in Guangzhou and, and other urban um, sites in China, use the internet and social media um, to bring African dance to, to the wider urban Chinese um, population or in particular, um, young population. So just wanted to add on. That's also something that we gotta finish that paper.
0: That's
1: coming out, coming soon.
2: But But yeah, um, thanks for mentioning that.
1: Yeah.
2: Thank you so much, Leslie. It's been such a fantastic conversation and I and I really um thoroughly enjoyed your book. And I encourage every all our listeners to go out and get a copy yourselves or or contact your library to ensure that 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 the library has has um allows access for for Congo's dancers. Um, Thank you, Leslie, for joining me on the show. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone.